Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer, and I will be your host. Kisan Patel, welcome to Diplomacy. It's a great pleasure to have you today with us. Kisan, you are the founder and CEO of DealRoom. You set up M&A Science, a training platform, and you are the author of Agile M&A, Proven Techniques to Close Deals Faster and Maximize Value. In terms of communications, I often to refer it to it as an art and a science. So I would love to hear you on that one. And probably kick off with, with my very first question on who or what has made the person you are today. Yeah, I think the art and science I agree with for us was emphasizing the science because practitioners are very familiar with the art, but we saw the science was lacking, particularly when I started working with corporate M&A practitioners and realizing they all had a distinctly unique view of approaching M&A. That's where we realized this industry, because of the way it operated in silos, has lacked standardization, best practices, hence the science in M&A. In terms of what's shaped myself, a lot of people don't know this. I was actually born with a club foot. So I, my right foot was completely inverted inwards. And I had to go through a series, about half a dozen operations to correct it. Having immigrant parents, there was no exception to missing any school. So I always had to have these procedures done over the summertime and always found myself hobbling around in a, a cast. But I, I think a big part of that was just learning early to overcome challenges. That you are going to have these things that come up in life. But if you can have the level of determination, you'll find a way around it. And, that, and that's where it allowed me to take that from this physical handicap I was born with, but still continue to push myself, get involved with the sports that I could play, some sports I couldn't play well. And uh, I think that level of persistence pursued in the career I'm after today. Overcoming challenges. You're today deeply involved in M&A. How do you define the challenges in M&A? People. I think the, the biggest thing we're seeing trending, and I don't know if it's more of the realization for the industry itself, is that we're shifting from this finance-focused M&A approach to a people-focused M&A approach, really thinking more deeply about the people experience for the employees as well as the customers as M&A lends to the largest magnitude of change management for the organization and being able to put the people and the considerations of people front and center to allow for a better, smoother transition, better alignment. So there's more motivation and ideally happier people when things are said and done. Is that bored on the primary preoccupation of what's going to happen to my job? Yeah, that's a part of it. I think a lot of this stuff happens earlier, Lewis. All these M&A deals start with this vision of innovation. There's some driver on what 
the executive teams are looking to achieve. And if we can really solidify this end state and bring it to the very, very front end of the process to socialize between the executives on both sides of the table and bring along that leader that's going to be responsible for executing to deliver this value through the integration efforts and start outlining what that go-to-market's going to look like. Um, that early thinking and alignment, because sometimes we get caught up in the finances, sellers thinking about how big of a check they're getting on the closing table, and that's the end of it. Not so much of how they're going to be involved post-close, what are their responsibilities, which is the most critical part to the success of the transaction itself. I think there's a component of the values and having these organizations understand each other's values that allow them to better understand the culture and the leadership approach so that there's clarity on what are the distinct differences, what are some of the stark contrasting differences that may cause some potential friction, and that could shape the actual strategy of how they're going to execute post-close. Are they going to do a lighter integration, full integration? Maybe there's things that are some early red flags that warrant them to dismiss the deal altogether and probably for the greater good. So I, I think there's another big component of that we're seeing, definitely getting more awareness around and emphasis and people are actually respecting the HR people and getting them involved earlier. I think there's a, another piece of the customer when we think about outlining that go to market like really bringing forth the customer journey as that centerpiece given each organization exists to serve their customers and they have their unique respected ways of doing that but what is that going to look like when it comes together there's a lot of moving parts to deliver that experience for the customer and and keep it positive so that the, the results are there, the customer's happy. I think an adjacent to that is when the company you're acquiring, if they can have an understanding, a form of reverse diligence, where they can understand the parent organization they're going to integrate into, what do their business lines look like? Where are they going to fit into it? And start getting a sense of this journey that they're going to be part of to start aligning the goals is another important part we've seen with successful acquirers when they can create that level of transparency. I think that we, we talked about the people leaving the jobs, getting out of frustration. It's when you can't, don't answer questions. I think the one thing I've seen is people tend to take the bad news pretty well. They don't take the news, no news at all. That's uh, intolerable. So if you have that early stage of how you're going to be communicating and answering these tough questions ahead of time, it goes a long ways. I feel like there's a reason for doing things. There's a reason for eliminating roles, but being able to speak up on, we are doing this. There's a good and bad of doing M&A. Some of these roles are getting eliminated, but we're here to help with that transition. We're going to help identify other potential roles in the organization that a person may be able to fit into or support them in external roles that they can fit into you know, some of those things go a long ways. But I don't know, those are just some of the thoughts that 
been on mind from these conversations in the past few years and where are we seeing M&A truly shifting? In terms of communications, I paraphrase this sometimes by saying you have to start with the end. Basically, you have to have a very clear idea on where do you want to be in two years' time? Where do you want the organization to stand? Or what should it in an ideal way look like? And that vision then triggers down and shapes the mind and the energy towards getting there. This self-fulfilling proficiency, basically, which you define at the very beginning on where you want the entire organization people to go. 100%. In the customer journey, that's an interesting one because very often customers come very end in an M&A. What is your experience there? The examples I, I would say is kind of when you have banks, we all are customer of our regular banks. And at some stage, those banks move into something else. As a customer, I'm not really aware that we have ever seen any benefit in those rebranding of banks. Yeah, it's important to get this stuff down early. I mean, waiting to close and then start building a go-to-market, that's when you have a lot of issues and problems and inefficiencies, timelines delayed, frustration, headaches. So the, the, we talk about agile in terms of utilizing as a framework, a lot of concepts and ideas borrowed from the software industry. And the idea is to move away from a plan-driven approach where we create these long checklist items, try to plan as much upfront as possible, and really shift to a model of responding to changes as they're happening. And it's worked well in the software industry because you build all these requirements for software only to get feedback from the customer to realize a lot of those were based on assumptions that were dead wrong. Now it's going to be extremely expensive to make changes and delay timelines considerably. We see the same thing with M&A because when you do a deal, you have very little information up front. As you progress through the stages, additional information continuously flows in. With that information comes identification of risks, identification of opportunities. Can we move as a team quickly and respond to this information as it comes in and start building our plans to mitigate the risk, to update our integration plans? And that's where we see a lot of value in doing that. Because during diligence, from the very start of diligence, you can iteratively develop that integration plan to clarify what that go-to-market is going to look like and have that very clear at the time you close. And even as information comes in after close, you can still fill in those white spaces with that same type of model to act quickly and responsive. In the work you have done and the research you have driven, you have developed quite a lot of best practices, materials, techniques. You mentioned it at the beginning, standardized processes wherever possible. Listening to you, I am pretty sure that the leaders whom you talk to would say, oh, yeah, that's right. I understand. That's very clear. How difficult is it to actually implement it and get those best practices and techniques implemented in a transaction and in a business? That's a really good <laughs> question, Lewis. It depends a lot on the maturity of the organization and their culture. If we are working with a software company that has agile as part of their culture, maybe the engineering side, and they're early in setting up a corporate development function, these things are relatively easy to introduce. 
where even some of the folks will read a book we published and have implemented some of those concepts and it's fun engaging with them because they move rather quickly in identifying some of these problem areas they have and then identifying what type of solutions they are, what type of techniques they can use and, and even adopting technology into their stack or workflow. It's a larger companies that are hard. I have one I can think of pretty vividly of a Fortune 500 manufacturing company that was pretty daunting because I knew ahead of time, this isn't going to be a tough organization to change. They've a very mature corporate development function, very active. There hasn't been a lot of change in the past decade in how they were doing things. But I think taking that real true consultative approach, having being the third party to come in, putting in a lot of effort to one, map out their MA process, identify who the key stakeholders are, interview as many as you can. You can interview everybody, but get through, do these qualitative interviews, real discovery interview to understand what are the pain points and challenges unique to that person's role. Try to wait it out too, and in terms of how big of a problem that, that actually is or contrast to other things that they're challenged with. And then we did an exercise where we brought in the total of seven stakeholders into a conference room. And the exercise was just simply to prioritize these things that we've documented as pain points. That's the only thing we want to achieve. So nothing else. We're going to keep this simple. We're just going to prioritize just so we know we're on the same page about what problems we're looking to solve. I don't want to throw a bunch of solutions out there. If it's not going to create value, let's get aligned on it. That was a very powerful exercise because it allowed these team members to get better transparency and what their colleagues were challenged with, a bit of that empathy so they understand these things. A lot of obvious solutions emerged that were pretty clear that we could fix some of this stuff with the simple tweak and adjustments and how we communicate between our, our teams. And then it, it allowed to create this clarity on what the priorities are for the corporate development function, which I realized later created the catalyst for change. It created a compelling reason to change. It actually allowed us to come in, introduce some of these ideas and concepts and have them get adopted. I'm saying it easier as said than done, but it, uh, it allowed us to at least get the motion going and start inching towards that bit of a change-oriented culture in this otherwise stagnant organization that tend to resist change prior. And then as we continued the feedback loop and checked in about how these changes were going and seeing that people were speaking up about some of the net positive results, we're able to continue that progress over the years that we worked with that organization and have really helped them to go from a pure waterfall model to a, a semi-agile model, and there's still ways to go. But I, I do think this larger companies, if they are they don't have a change-oriented culture, they tend to be the hardest ones to drive change, but not impossible. It's all about creating a compelling reason for leadership to make changes. How would you define success or how can you measure success in M&A? That's a tough one. It's not a quantitative reference because we always hear these fabled failure rate statistics. 
but then there's no clarity in what the definition of failure actually is. Exactly. <laughs> so, so how do you define success? Or what is an expression of success? Maybe that's a better way to articulate that. What is an expression of success? So it's unique for each deal. I think that's the thing for organizations to clarify. I do like OKRs. I think having OKRs to speak the same language and clearly across the organization of why we're buying this organization, what the value drivers are, that we can list our objectives and the key results in a way that's prioritized. So it's very clear if we're buying this organization for their technology, that's what our goal is. And did we end up adopting and integrating that technology? Do we buy that from the engineering team? Do we keep them? Do we retain them? Or do we have an attrition problem? So I, I think there's ways to measure that based on the objectives. And I see that becoming more common. You know, otherwise, if it's purely financially driven, which can have some elements there, when we look at the failure, it's not so much the deal blew up and the value is completely lost, but that the timelines were extended and it took longer to realize the value than they originally anticipated. I mean, that's probably what the majority definition of failure that we see is. But I think shifting towards the actual value drivers of the deal and benchmarking against that is where more organizations are moving towards. You mentioned before the role of leadership. As you're developing training for M&A, I imagine that it's targeted at leadership, among others. How can leadership prepare? Because probably part of the exercise is preparation, anticipation. So we mentioned, or you mentioned earlier, the operating models, it's a culture, it's values, it's the agility of the organization. But how can leaders make the difference and get prepared for a great transaction? A lot of listening. I think a lot of listening, a lot of preparation. Sometimes we get overly focused on the company we're acquiring and getting our checklist ready for diligence and things of that sort, but really focusing on your people that you're going to be working with to do the deal because you're going to be working across functions and those leaders are likely going to be fractional time commitment to the transaction you're working on. Being able to really spend that time upfront to make sure that their commitment's there, that they do have a sense of priority with the transaction you're working on. I think also knowing what the backup plan is, that if for something comes up and their availability isn't available, who's going to be the fallback? I think some of those things are, are where the bottlenecks or the challenges happen when they're not as well planned out or communicated and making sure you have the right resources for the team. I think as you move and progress through the transaction, sometimes it's you can get very tactical on the transactions. And that's where it becomes challenging. At the end of the day, the biggest problems with M&A are people issues. So when we start becoming overly tactical, we forget about the people and those kind of frustrations bubble up. So if we can really keep that human element front and center to listen, to take those meetings where we can put aside our agendas and really listen to the other person, understand what they're thinking, how they're feeling, why they feel that way, understand what their goals and challenges are and put a foot forward to put some consideration how you can support 
them with their goals and challenges. You know, keeping that as part of that philosophy and the real people focus would ultimately go a long way in demonstrating that proactive leadership. It's really empathizing with uh, that party, knowing that this is a very large magnitude of change that's happening with their organization. It's disruptive. They're changing employment without their own conscious decision to do so. So essentially involuntary change of employment. Uh, so so it, it is and just being understanding about that and, and really trying to connect with the person in that regard. I think putting that effort up front would, is one of the big things for, for leaders to really prepare and execute better in M&A. In the integration process and just talking about people, how do you get the right speed of integration? If you're too slow, you're losing the momentum, people get frustrated with the uncertainty, and that is a huge challenge. If you're too fast, you're losing out people because they asked me, I didn't have the time, I don't understand anything anymore, they lost me. How do you get the right tempo? Or what is your experience? Or what can you feel there? Yeah, I mean, so we, we tend to work with this with our clients, and our role is a little different just because we're setting up the infrastructure and, and sort of the tool sets and their their models to execute on this. And we've seen the more successful acquirers tend to lean towards getting things done as quick as possible. But what enables them to do that all goes back to preparation. How well did they start the integration thinking, planning as early as possible in the process? And we've seen organizations where they have the hesitancy. They don't have the full certainty of getting the deal done. They don't want to bring the integration lead in. They want to wait until they get the LOI signed and then they start <laughs> a little uh, playing catch up over there. The ones that really start putting that stuff as early as possible, that their integration lead is involved in pipeline review meetings, that they're part of the even early discussions with the executives of the target company and starting to shape that go-to-market outline and having those discussions with the executive even prior to LOI, like they really set the stage so that they can keep the iterative approach as they continue to evolve and develop their integration plan so they can really hit the ground running to execute. One of the rare things which I don't see very often in M&A is the question about the transfer of knowledge, which is very immaterial. Yes, okay, you have IP and, and whatever. Yeah, they are documented. But the actual knowledge, the know-how to do things or best practices, how can those transfer or how do they transfer? We look at it as connecting the process. A lot of times organizations look at diligence and integration management as two distinctly different processes, different teams. When you bring them together, and that's one of the things we focused on about seven, eight years ago through the software side and saying, hey, a lot of times the this information is extremely siloed and disconnected. That in fact, we don't have this clear knowledge transfer that happens because we look at it as a whole different stage, different effort completely and different teams involved. Then what ends up happening is once we run through diligence, this information's there. Previously used to get archived, USB drive, the lawyers get a copy, the corp dev folks. But then integration, maybe they get access to it and try to unpack and make sense of it. But more often than not, they end up 
re-diligencing the deal again. They end up requesting for a lot of the same information that was exchanged during diligence with that target company for integration. And then it even gets more challenging with the integration process being set up as work streams based on functions because there could be redundant effort between those different functions. When we look at how things are really shifting, especially kind of referencing the agile model as sort of the modern approach here, now you're one creating continuity between diligence integration. You're looking at it as one continuous flow. So even using a project management type of software, you're able to create your multi-party work stream for diligence so that you have your internal functional leads involved with diligence, your external parties, the counterparty, really exchanging that information in a robust way, allowing those list of items to be organized in a descending order priority. So it's extremely clear what the highest priority orders of tasks are. They get the emphasis and attention they need to move that process along faster. In parallel to that, creating a work stream for more of the internalized around integration planning. What this enables is functional leads to be able to do both diligence and integration planning or contributing to the integration plan at the same time, which creates a lot of efficiency. They become very familiar with this and the considerations around the integration plan, as well as having the integration lead involved earlier with access to this information and being able to drive the preparation for integration. When we look at the actual execution, one, we talked a little bit about OKRs and having these prioritized. So when we go to execute integration, it's staged in a way where we can capture the intended value, the biggest value drivers early. Even if this integration is gonna take longer, at least we're capturing the most valuable drivers as early as possible because of the way it's prioritized. In doing so, we're shifting from a traditional functional-based work stream to cross-functional teams that are designed around capturing that value, which is very similar to the software world where we used to have all the back-end programmers on a team, all the front-end programmers on a team, all the QA people. They're highly inefficient because they're just separate teams and now with an agile model, you, you have one of each. You can have a back-end, front-end designer. And they're a very small team, but they can act independently. They can create functionality and value on their own. allows them to move a lot faster. So that similar approach and structure applies well when it comes to M&A integration. We're even seeing large organizations start setting up these kind of cross-functional groups to execute on integration. Have you built a such a systematic process for communications. I hear the science part and the technique and the processes for the integration and for the, the diligence. Are you aware of a, such a systematic approach in communications or is that then the art part which you have to be agile with? I, you know, it's almost like maturity. It's like <laughs> you, you have to do deals to realize how important the communication part is. And we see organizations will eventually centralize it where there is a centralized sort of comm team. And then in the early stages, CorpDev is going to be heavily involved in shaping some of that message. When you're doing these larger transactions, you have to do an announce. It's interesting. It's interesting to see the more mature companies will leverage that very early. And then you want the collaboration between your functions as well. 
And it really, really goes through the key leadership across that whole M&A deal and the different functions evolved to be able to contribute so that there is a very detailed plan on how things are going to be communicated to each different participant involved. But I can probably learn more uh, from you, Lewis, on that. <laughs> different experiences can complement. Keith, if I, if I summarize our conversation, I really like the idea of starting with that vision, which you have explained, so that at the very early stage, there is clarity on, on the journey, basically. I think you have made that point very clearly. You also articulated, and it is probably, if we use buzzwords and, and something, a paradigm shift when you say deals today have to focus on people in a very different way than they used to do, and probably much more than on the pure financials. I'm not sure you would have been able to even have such a speech or such wording, let's say five or 10 years ago. There's certainly a novelty there in, in the way you're approaching this. And I think there where you, where you really make a focus is the agility in adapting in a permanent way on a daily basis, having the journey, having the road, but being flexible enough so that you can overcome the challenges that are on the daily basis and deliver on the biggest value drivers. To summarize on your end, what, what is your good tip that you can give at the last end? What should we take away? The one thing that you give, would give as an advice. We, we talked about empathy, but I, I would say broadly, transparency is the biggest thing. I, I think a lot of organizations are getting over. We've kind of operated at this intense nature of secrecy, but there's a lot of value created with transparency. We've seen some interesting things with some of the software companies that had that as a big part of their culture, where they've created this broad level of transparency from the beginning with the company they're acquiring. And it actually allowed them to have much better results with integration. I think that transparency too, when we talk about having an iterative process, allowing you to really iterate and even think about the communication plan. Like ultimately, we want to really have all the considerations in there from the different views, but being able to iterate on that with that, that type of agile approach, it helps foster that as well is by having that culture of transparency. So I think that's the one thing I would really strive for. A lot of organizations tend to overdo it. You know, I know we, start, we all sign our strict NDAs, but maybe having the other view on it, like in, instead of what we can't say, what can we say and try to encourage more transparency. Wonderful. Thank you, Keeson. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you for uh, your advice, your insights. It was a real pleasure to have you on this show. My pleasure, Lewis. Thank you for the time. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website, www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.